0: So have you ever had a toothache? If you've never had a toothache and you want to keep it that way, then here's something you might want to try. You might want to wash behind your ears. Undoubtedly, according to some old superstitious folklore, if you will wash behind your ears, it will keep the toothaches away. Now, I'm 101.2% confident that that is not true in any way, shape, or form. But that doesn't mean that washing behind your ears may not still provide some type of benefits to your health. At least one resource says that washing behind your ears might help you avoid, and if you're a medical person, correct me later, seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrheic. I don't know. I said it right this morning, but I knew I was going to say it wrong now. But a form of dermatitis that is described in this way, mild, Chronic, scaly, flaky, itchy, red. Now, I don't know. That's the kind of thing that I think I'll just go ahead and put the loofah behind the old listeners and just make sure I can avoid all of that kind of skin irritation altogether. But beyond health and beyond hygiene, there's also a little bit of a moral connection that we have with washing behind your ears, Maybe you are familiar with the verse from Second Hallucinations, chapter 5, verse 3, that says, cleanliness is next to godliness. In case you missed that reference, that is not really in the Bible. It is a phrase that started getting used in ancient writings more than 500 years before Jesus was even born. And so what does it mean? Well, the moral picture behind it, you could think of a little this way. Have you ever had anybody walk up and, and shake your hand or give you a hug and then pull your ears back to see what your bathing habits are. I mean, other than your mother or your grandmother, I'm assuming. Maybe they did that at least once or twice. But hopefully no one that you normally would see outside of a mother or grandmother would pull your ears back to see what's back there. But it doesn't mean that just because nobody sees or looks behind your ears, that it doesn't mean that behind your ears is not an important place to wash. So the moral connection would be this. Just because everybody can't see every single one of your thoughts, Just because everybody can't see what's in your heart and in your mind and in your attitudes doesn't mean that those things are not important. In fact, Jesus said that what we say and what we do is actually a reflection of what's going on in our minds and what's going on in our hearts. Now, when it comes to the mind, it's a little different. Every single religion, every single philosophy... Every single educational system, every single business model, every single halftime pep talk has all kind of tricks and tips for helping you change your mind, helping you clean up your mind and, and get rid of that stinking thinking and start thinking right. But the heart is a little different. I mean, how do you get a washcloth behind your heart? Now, again, I'm not talking about your your organ heart the one that's pumping blood through your body we're we're talking about that part of your existence where your desires and your attitudes and your emotions live that that deep down secret part that invisible part that really makes you who you are how do you clean that part well it is a lot harder than you probably think and it is a lot easier than you probably think. We're going to ask the Apostle Paul to help us think through the hard and the easy of what it means to have a clean heart, and we're going to do it through his letter through Titus. We're looking just at the last part of verse 5, but I want us to start reading way back up in verse 3. So Titus 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and slave to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. I want you to imagine a world without pronouns. And in case that's hard for you, I put a little something together to help you. Bubba Ray bought a brand new pair of boots. Bubba Ray went to Bubba Ray's house to show Bubba Ray's family Bubba Ray's new boots. Then Bubba Ray and Bubba Ray's wife, Barbie Sue, went to dinner at Bubba Ray and Barbie Sue's favorite barbecue restaurant. After Bubba Ray and Barbie Sue finished eating, Bubba Ray and Barbie Sue drove Bubba Ray's BMW to the big box store to buy a big box of Bisquick so that Barbie Sue could make Barbie Sue's famous beignets for Sunday brunch. Now, aren't you thankful for pronouns? <laughs> aren't you thankful that we have to talk like that all the time or write like that all the time? That pronouns are, are great. And I particularly love the pronouns that Paul uses right here in this part of his letter To Titus. He says, we were once foolish. We were once deceived. His love appeared. He saved us. His mercy. Those are astounding pronouns. See, when we are lost and dead and without hope, God, out of his astoundingly amazing, awesome, unmeasurable, rich mercy can reach down and rescue and save drowning sinners like me and like you. See, he initiates, he gives, and we receive, and we respond. These, these are tremendous pronouns. This is, this is great grammar. Now, you may be thinking, God, poor Dal, he's, he's lost his mind. He's, he's saying that grammar and pronouns are great What in the world is he thinking? What's so great about this information right here? Why is this such a big deal? Well, let me ask it in another way. Have you ever experienced any of the following things? Shame, fear, regret, depression, anger, worry, jealousy, rage, arrogance, or apathy. Have you ever experienced any of those things? And have you ever wished those things would go away? Have you ever tried really hard to do 12 steps and 7 steps and and go away to retreats and resorts and read books and go to conferences and and go to prayer groups and and get help from friends, and you really want those things to go away, but they keep coming back again and again and again? Have you ever had days where those things just feel like the kind of thing you're never going to break free from? Well, here's the thing, you won't. At least not on your own. You see, when a paramedic is given CPR, they don't stop halfway through the resuscitation and lean down to the patient and say, okay, you take it from here. And you know why? Because that patient can't rescue themselves. They need somebody outside of them to come and bring them back to life. You might be able to pull yourself up from depression, despair, fear, worry, immorality, sin for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, maybe maybe even a few years. But there is no human being who is able to pull out their heart completely and perfectly and ultimately from the consequences of sin and all of sin's offshoots. There's no way. Why? Well, this is how Paul put it to the folks at the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You See, dead people don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. A dead person cannot rescue and save themselves. You see, every human in the universe knows deep down that when you get past the hair and the clothes and the car and the house and the job and the education and the family and the friends and the hobbies, when you, when you get past all the stuff that's on the surface, every human being knows there's that place inside of them where their emotions, their attitudes, their desires, their passions, and their responses, where those things live. And every human being knows that no matter how hard they try, they cannot permanently clean that place up. Now, you may be thinking at this point, let me introduce you to my pastor, old Downer Dow. He has nothing but bad news about everything. So is there any good news in the midst of what sounds like really, really bad news? Well, I'm sorry, there is no good news. As I shared with you last week, there is no good news. There's only great news. There's only fantastic news. There's, there's only wonderful news in the middle of this bad news. And so, what is this great, fantastic news? Paul goes on writing to the Ephesians But when you were dead, God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Pronouns. (laughs) Don't don't miss the pronouns. These, These pronouns are incredible. Because of his rich mercy, because of his great love, he made us alive by his grace. Look. Look at this amazing work of God on behalf of of you. It's for his glory, but it's for your good. See, the great news about the gospel is it is the perfect fit for your greatest problem. See, you can't clean your heart yourself. You can't save yourself, but God can save And how does God do that? Well, Paul says it right here in the next part of verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, let me start by saying what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that salvation is about a person being baptized and immersed in water in the baptistry at the Baptist church. If it did, then all you have to do to go to heaven is meet me in the pool behind the choir loft one Sunday morning and you are done. All the magic can happen. But see, that's not what it means. See, baptism in water is not where salvation comes from, but it doesn't mean that baptism is not important. At almost every single church that I've served at over the years, there have been some adults who have come from different denominations and they really struggle with the notion of having to be a full-fledged member in the Baptist church requires being dunked, requires being baptized by immersion. And almost every single one of the churches that I've been to, there's there's been people who actually became members of the church under the assumption that they had been baptized by immersion, but then later on it was found out they had not. And in every single church I have been in, There have been church members that have not spent a moment thinking about how beautiful the command of baptism really is. They just did it because the preacher said, come back next Sunday. We're going to baptize you and invite your grandparents. But there's more to baptism than that. So again, let me say this. This passage is not about being physically baptized in water. That's not what this is about. But I am going to make a few comments about what it means to be physically baptized in water. Why am I going to do that? Well, for several reasons. One, God in his kindness is bringing us a lot of visitors. We have new people every week, and we're so thankful if you're visiting today. We're glad you're here. And when you have visitors like that, inevitably you're going to have people from different denominational backgrounds. And so part of it is maybe for the good of some that have been visiting. We also have some folks who are in our church that have been struggling with the concept of baptism and what's all involved in that and being a part of the church. We also have some folks in the church that really have never thought about the beauty of baptism. They just know it's something that you have to do to to join the church. And then also, there are some folks in our church that I think God is really stirring their heart to respond in faith to Jesus Christ and, and be baptized. And so that's another reason that I'm going to share a few things. Now, this is not going to be hellfire and baptism comments. This also is not going to answer every single question in the world on baptism. My hope is that I'm just going to share a few things that will just help us think a little bit. And the first of those things is this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if that's true, which it is, then why would Jesus give a commandment to his disciples that they had to baptize people who were going to follow after him? If it's not a requirement For their actual salvation, why would Jesus make it a requirement of what it meant to follow after him? Well, the truth is the Bible does not give us a black and white, one times one equals one answer to the why of why Jesus commanded this. But it does give us this. It gives us the command. Jesus commanded and and required to his disciples that they would baptize those who were going to follow after him. And so sometimes... We obey commands from Jesus, not because we figured out all the math, but because we love Jesus, because we're devoted to him. In the early church, it is pretty consistently seen that that most new Christians were baptized, usually within about a year of becoming a Christian. Sometimes they were baptized quicker. Many times in the early church there was a a discipling time, a a more serious time where they were helped along in their faith before the baptism would occur. But but usually it would happen within the first year. In other words, people were baptized in the early church before they knew all the math of Christianity, before they even knew all the math of baptism. They, They didn't understand every single aspect of what it meant to follow Jesus, but they still followed through with baptism. It was still part of what they did. Now, we're not saying, though, blindly obey a commandment from Jesus. Oh, what well, Jesus said it, I just got to do it, and I don't have to think about it. That's not what we're saying at all. I do want you to think about it, and, and I think the New Testament gives us some great things as we think about it. And maybe one of the best places is in Romans 6, verse 4. This is what it says. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is extremely powerful language here. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, was brutally executed for your sin. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, was brutally executed for your sin and for my sin. And his dead body was placed in the tomb of a man named Joseph. But three days later, his body was no longer there because God had raised him from the dead. I mean, that's some great math all by itself, right? I mean, that's some tremendously good news. It may not be the kind of math that explains every single aspect of what baptism is about, but at the very least, it gives a lot of beauty to the reason for obeying this command. And what's that reason? Look right there in the middle of passage again, three verses as Christ was. See, the reason we respond to the command from Jesus to be baptized is because we want to honor Jesus and we want to associate with Jesus. Jesus himself was physically baptized by John the Baptist, but it's not just a physical baptism that's part of this beautiful picture here. See, Jesus went into the grave for you, and then he came out of the grave for you. He went into the grave to absorb the penalty of our sin. And then he came out of the grave to give brand new everlasting life to those who put their faith in him. That's intense imagery about something that most people just think is a, a ceremony of the church. But, but it's not. It's this picture of going from death to life. It's this picture of, of having absolutely no hope and then being full of joy. So we may not understand all the math behind it, but at the very least, the Bible is pretty clear about the beauty behind the word and the thoughts of baptism. But why immersion? Why is it these Baptists believe in immersion? Immersion. Well, when we look at the words of Jesus, when we look at the words of the New Testament, the word that is most consistently used and associated with baptism is a word that means to go down into the water. And so there really is is not a picture of understanding that you would have to go down into the water, so to speak, just to be sprinkled. There seems to be more involved in the picture of going down into the water. But it's not even just about going down into the water either. You see, in the, in the early church, when, when Christianity was just starting, there was a, a huge connection between baptism and faith in Christ. Baptism was actually part of what it meant to confess your faith in Christ. As you've heard me share in our baptism services so far, in the early church, it might bring persecution. And guess what? In some places in the world today, baptism still brings persecution. It's not a ceremony. It's a bold proclamation of following Jesus. And so we have this picture in the Bible that that you make a disciple before you baptize the disciple, so to speak. There seems to be a first and and then a next. It's not the baptism that makes the disciple, the baptism is the response of becoming a disciple. So so because of that truth and because of that picture in the New Testament, let me just make two quick comments. And both of these comments could be entire sermons, but, but we won't do that. The first is this, this connection between being a disciple and then being baptized. It means that we need to be really prayerful and wise about baptizing people. Because it is possible to baptize someone who is not a disciple. And then we actually create false assurance in their lives. So we want to be wise. We want to be rejoicing in baptism. But we also want to be wise. And secondly, because of this nature of being a disciple and, and then being baptized, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of rational sense for us to say that an infant has become a disciple before they're baptized. So in the New Testament, there seems to be this, this connection that it's just really hard to separate the two. That faith is, is part of the baptism. That becoming a disciple is part of the baptism. So what does that say for my friends who are ministers and they're not Baptist? What does that say for my friends who are ministers at other churches and they practice baptisms other than immersion? Well, what it means is this. The reason that they are my friends is because we believe on the very nature of the gospel. In other words, we believe together that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So there is agreement on the most important thing. We agree on the work of Christ. We agree on the sufficiency of Christ. We respectfully disagree on a secondary matter. And really, we probably disagree on some other secondary matters, but they are clearly secondary matters. Now, because of that, we don't go to church together. <laughs> we, we go to different churches. We're in, in different denominations. We handle things different, but we don't handle the gospel differently. Now, that's not a blanket statement because there are Baptist churches that don't preach the gospel and there are Methodist churches that don't preach the gospel. And there's Presbyterian churches that don't preach the gospel. There, there are churches all over the world that actually don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not a blanket agreement. But there is agreement on the gospel. There is agreement on this salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And so even though we may not go to church together and do the same things, we agree on the gospel. Now, can secondary matters make things messy and muddy in the church sometimes? Sure they can. I'll just go ahead and say every day secondary matters can make things messy every now and then in the church. But all the more reason why we focus on the gospel. Because if we get the gospel right and if we agree on the gospel, if we agree that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then we work through the secondary things. And sometimes we disagree on the secondary things, but we don't disagree on the gospel. The gospel is what we come back to. The primary matters, there is unity in. And the secondary matters, we stand by our individual convictions on those secondary matters. And the same is true for churches. Churches should agree on the gospel, and then it is okay for them to stand by their secondary matters. To stand with conviction on what they believe. So we would say that here we would stand on our conviction that we believe the the Bible teaches that baptism by immersion is best. And we would want to be sure that we're communicating this beautiful command from Jesus is beautiful. It's it's not just a ceremony. And then we would graciously plead with people to respond to this beauty-saturated command from Jesus and to obey him as he leads. What we would not do is spend lots and lots and lots of extra time discussing secondary matters when we live in a community where thousands of people are lost and without hope and heading toward eternal separation from God. So we talk about them, but we do not obsess about them. We obsess about the gospel. We obsess about the person of Jesus, and we do all we can to make much of him. Now, have I answered all your questions on baptism? Nope, sure haven't. Could I answer all your questions on baptism in 27 sermons? Well, I'll answer that question this way. Went on Amazon.com this week, went under books, typed in Christian baptism. This was the number I got, 19,829 books. So I'm going to go ahead and say, no, I'm never going to be able to answer all the questions on baptism that are out there. But I do hope that at least a few of these things have helped your mind a little bit. Now, does that mean because our church believes in baptism by immersion that you should quit attending because you don't believe that? Well, I hope not, but I can't make that decision for you. What I can say is I can encourage all of us that according to the Bible, baptism is not a ceremony. It's not just something that you do. It is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing in the lives of people day in and day out. And I can encourage you then when it comes to primary issues or secondary issues, grab the Bible and invest time there and read and get advice and pray and don't freak out and don't be anxious. But just go as the Lord leads. Obey him as he leads you. And I can also encourage you that water baptism does not save a person. So if that's true, then then how is a person saved? Paul tells us right here. He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewing are are similar, yet there's one pretty incredible difference between the two. They're similar in several ways, though. They are both the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot regenerate yourself. You cannot renew yourself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. They're also similar in that both of them bring new life. Regeneration brings new life to a dead soul. And renewal, renewing, brings new desires to that new soul. New desires and new passions. The one important difference between the two is regeneration is an instantaneous act. God reaches down and quickens a dead soul to respond to the gospel. God saves. God regenerates. God redeems. Renewal, though, is a little bit different. Renewal is what happens right after regeneration. We could say it that way. Renewal is what picks up right after the instantaneous event. And renewal begins the process of helping us have new passions and new desires. Let me see if I can share it in a way that might be helpful. Augustine was one of our earliest Christian theologians. The story is told that sometime after God saved Augustine, that he was walking down the path one day in town. And a woman came by who was part of his former sinful life. And he kindly nodded at the woman and continued to walk on. But she stopped and she said, Augustine, do do you not know me anymore? See, look, it is I. Augustine looked back at her and, knowing and realizing how much God had changed his heart, he said to the woman, But it is not I. He was a different man, his life had been changed. See, God regenerated his dead heart and his dead soul. God brought new life into his heart and his soul. God cleaned his heart and his soul. And so all of his passions, all of his desires, his attitude was different than it was before. And then the renewing part picked up right after the regeneration because the renewing part kept changing his passions, kept changing his desires to where over time he continued to become a new person. You see, the true mark of regeneration is that a person's faith and trust in Christ keep going. That it keeps growing. Perfectly? No. There are going to be some really, really, really hard days. There's going to be some days where things at home drive you to anger and despair. There are going to be some days where things at work or at school drive you crazy. There's going to be some days where you drive in your car across town to the bank or to the doctor or to the lawyer or to the courthouse and all you have waiting for you is discouraging, stressful news. And there's going to be some days that you're not even going to be able to drive. You're going to pull your car over on the side of the road and in shock, And tears, you're gonna listen to reports of thousands of people dying in a coordinated attack in New York City and DC and a field in Pennsylvania. Those days happen. But even on those days, Even on those days, regeneration and renewing help us to look the sin and the pain and the heartache and the despair right in the face. And through our anger, through our tears, through our confusion and our frustration, we still whisper to our hearts and we whisper to the world, I once was lost. But now, now I'm found. Something's changed and it still matters today somebody put it this way we are not what we ought to be we are not what we want to be we are not what we shall be but we are something very different from what we used to be it's a great work of regeneration and renewing in our lives she had been in and out of failed relationships her whole life. Not just one failed marriage, but five failed marriages. And the relationship she was in at the time, she was in with a man who wasn't even her husband. She was gossiped about all over town. No one in town had anything to do with her. They would shun her completely. She was hurt She was sad. She was confused. Her heart was dirty and her heart was broken. And along comes the stranger with a very odd invitation, a very strange offer. Jesus turned to this woman and this is what he said. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. She had never heard anything like that before. And before she knew it, she was gasping out at Jesus. Sir, please give me this water. I am thirsty. I am tired. My life is full of failure. My heart is broken. Please, please, sir, give me this water. You see, in that moment, that woman heard words from Jesus, and she knew instantaneously that they were words of real hope and real peace and real love and real life. In other words, she listened to the simple words of Jesus and for the first time ever, knew she would not have to go find another man. She heard words that told her, you can have a clean new heart. Listen, the offer of Jesus has never changed. It's still exactly the same today. He's still saying to you, come. Come and and never thirst again. Come and find love. Come and find peace. Come and find joy. Come and find life. And come and find hope. Not just hope that lasts for the weekend, but a perfect hope, an everlasting hope, a hope that lasts beyond the end, Because it's a hope that lasts forever. Jesus still says today to come. And the hope in Jesus is still and will forever be perfect hope. Let's pray.